This is the Education Gadfly Show. You're from Oregon, so I guess that's appropriate. Yeah, we're a little off. I thought you rooted for ducks instead of <laughs> eat them, but okay. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming my special guest for this week, Chrissy Sizer. Chrissy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Chrissy is a senior researcher at the American Institutes for Research. Also joining us, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. How are you, David? Doing well. And Chrissy, did you have a nice Thanksgiving? Pretty good, with the two kids under the age of five. Oh. A little hectic. Oh, my God. Okay, now I understand. You know, David and his wife have a baby on the way uh, very soon. Could be... Uh, could be... I mean, we could get the call during the show. podcast okay. <laughs> And, uh, wow, I've been probably a little too honest with him about how challenging it is with small children. I, I feel adequately prepared for the challenge. All right. Psychologically, thank you. But now I, I, you know, Chrissy, I don't know how it is for you, but I, when I was in that stage, especially, all I can say is thank God for Monday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wow, that must have been a very long, long, long holiday weekend with little kids. Okay, anyways, but I digress. Uh, we are excited to talk to Chrissy today about a new study she has out on the long-term impact of early college high schools. So let's do it in Ed Reform Update. All right, Christy. So first of all, I find that a lot of people are still kind of confused about early college versus, say, dual credit. So give us the basics. What is an early college high school? Let's start with that. So early college high schools are high schools in which all students are offered the opportunity to take college credits during high school. So usually dual enrollment programs are available for higher achieving students, uh, students who know to ask their guidance counselors for assistance in applying for these college courses. But early college high schools are really aimed for everybody in the high school to take college courses and get the supports they need to succeed, not only in their courses, but then later applying to a uh, transfer to a four-year college and take the classes they need to complete a degree. So the goal for many early colleges is to earn up to two years of college credits during high school and or get an associate degree by the time they graduate from high school. And all of that is at no cost or little cost to the students and their families. Yeah, amazing. And are these schools usually selective or not? These are open enrollment schools by and large? I believe they are mostly open enrollment. All of the schools in our study were open enrollment. Okay. There were no selective admissions, and they're located largely in urban areas, um, especially as spearheaded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They mm -hmm. target underprivileged students, students who yeah. are traditionally underserved in higher education. So many of them serve uh, predominantly students who qualify for free or reduced price lunch mm -hmm. and minority students. Okay. And what, just one more question. Is it fair to say, would you say that the coursework that they encounter is more advanced than they would otherwise be exposed to? Or is it more the sense that they're just getting college credit for it and it's similar? It would be more advanced to the extent that they are taking college credits with right. other college students. At least uh, in theory. In theory, yeah. And and there is a mixture. There are some early colleges where students actually go onto the college mm -hmm. campus and take the college courses from college uh, professors. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other early colleges where certified teachers within the school teach mm -hmm. the course, but they must have a master's degree in the course in which they're teaching. Yeah. Right. So, all right. So it's, it's like dual credit or dual enrollment like that in that, you know, I used to think, oh, that was all kids fine getting on a bus and going to the local college. That's not, I mean, that still happens in some cases, but for the most part, it's happening in the high school and oftentimes with high school teachers, but that have been specially depends. certified. It, it depends. All right. So yeah, now we got it. it. Okay. So you're looking at these early college high schools. You mentioned Gates. So these are from the sort of, I don't know how many generations ago this was <laughs> of the Gates Foundation when they were into this, but these schools that were supported by the Gates Foundation. And now we've had enough time that you can look at long-term impacts. Exactly. All of the students in our study and 
entered grade nine between 2005, six and 2007, eight. So this was okay. a while ago, like okay. you mentioned uh, generations ago in terms of Gates funding. Yeah. Uh, but we have been able to follow them now for six years after expected high school graduation. Okay. Interesting. And so also just to think, so these are kids, this was before the great recession that they entered high school, though the great recession hits while they're, I guess, in high school and mm-hmm. certainly is still uh, an issue while they're going into higher ed. Okay. So what, what do we find out? So what we found is that six years after expected high school graduation, these early college students, uh, well, first of all, I should describe the design of the study. Yeah. Uh, for this study. We- Only for David. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I pretend that I care. No, I'm just kidding. I, okay. Yes. Well, we have to, it's so rare in education research that we have a randomized design because okay. as a quantitative researcher, I'm always focusing for the yeah. most rigorous study design so we can actually believe the findings. And what we found were that there were 10 early college high schools in which they had admissions lotteries. Mm-hmm. So there were more students who wanted to attend the school than they had slots available. And so uh, between 2005-06 and 2007-08, students applied to attend the early college and some portion of students Mm -hmm. who applied were randomly accepted to the early college and the other uh, roughly half were not accepted to the early college. So we were able to estimate the impact by Mm -hmm. comparing those who won and did not win the lottery. David is so happy. He's like, it's between beaming and crying. I really (laughs) think you might get a tissue. Should I get a tissue for you? You look so happy. It's exciting, right? Because it's potentially a big problem if it's not random for this sort of of right. topic right? absolutely right. No, no, no. okay so no this is great you've got you've got a real control group kids are the same in every possible way right yeah we you know in the paper we describe how they're similar in terms of uh, you know eligibility for free reduced price yeah. lunch status minority status but these are all students who wanted to go to the early college yeah. so yeah. we've also got those motivational factors yeah. um those yeah. what we call non-measurables right now um, these early colleges might not be typical in that they have they are oversubscribed. Uh, right. Exactly. And yeah, so we, we, our we schools are not the, yeah. Yeah, generalizable to the right. population of early colleges, but within the sample yeah. of students, we have that impact estimate. <laughs> I have been paying attention. Yeah, yeah. Our, our, our think tank presidents are learning. <laughs> <laughs> Possible. Okay. I okay. keep interrupting you, which is what I do, but I should stop. Go ahead. Okay. I, I kind of interrupted myself. Right. So so what, now that I've described the study design, what we did find was that six years after expected high school graduation, the early college students were significantly more likely to enroll in college, particularly mm-hmm. two-year colleges. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we looked at four-year colleges and selective four-year colleges, as defined by Barron's, there was no significant impact. Okay. Um, and what we found by you know looking into the data was that the early college students, because eight of our 10 early colleges were partnered with two-year colleges, mm-hmm. they were more likely to transfer from the two-year to the four-year college at some point, whereas our control students were more likely to immediately enroll in the four-year mm-hmm. college after high school. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we did not find a significant impact on enrolling in a four-year college, but we did find a significant impact on bachelor's degree attainment. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is telling in itself that they're just as likely to enroll in a four-year college, but more likely to get a bachelor's degree, particularly four years after Mm -hmm. expected high school graduation, which we would call Mm -hmm. on-time graduation for bachelor's degree attainment, by about 10 percentage points. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was not only a significant impact, but a pretty sizable one. Even six years after expected high school graduation, the difference was five percentage points. Mm -hmm. So it started to narrow, but it was still statistically significant. Oh, that's interesting because it also means that these kids probably, you know, just got a head start as as was designed. And so they could get to graduation on time. Whereas maybe some of their peers, you know, it was taking longer as they were maybe working at the same time, et cetera. Exactly. Interesting. This, this is great stuff. Were you able to look at money? In other words, did, <laughs> did they walk away with less debt also? So we have not measured that yet. Okay. Uh, we are hoping to continue the study, uh, survey students now that they are this far out, more yeah. than six years after expected high school graduation, find out about student debt, find mm-hmm. out about job placements, wages yeah. that they're earning. But it is our theory, especially since a lot of students earned up to two years of college credits during high school, mm-hmm. free for them, that they would come out of college with less student debt. Yep. It's yep. 
we have no data to support that, but yes. hopefully in the next few years we will. Gotcha. Oh, well, then, wow. So this is a, the, those are, these are big impacts. I mean, what, so what's your take on what this means? I mean, just straight away would be, well, then we should have more early college high schools and especially ones that are so good that they are oversubscribed and a lot of kids <laughs> want to go to that. Is that right? Sounds like a good plan. Uh-huh. This doesn't necessarily tell us anything about, say, dual credit or AP. It's just about this one narrow strategy, right? Right. Yeah, it is specifically about early colleges in our study. And I think that in addition to let's support early colleges, let's create more of them. Let's find ways to financially support the ones that exist. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the Gates Foundation did a great job providing the support to start these early colleges. Mm -hmm. But moving forward, how do they sustain? Because it does take a a little, we also have a cost benefit study um, that's coming out shortly that shows that it is a little bit more expensive, but it also provides a lot more benefits, economic benefits to students and to mm-hmm. the population at large with increased tax revenue. Expensive for the student or expensive for the state? Expensive for the state. So mm-hmm. in terms of like per student spending at the school level, um, it's the the cost is not absorbed by students, but that's why the Gates Foundation provided original funding in order to additional support to pay for those college credits because usually that cost is incurred either by the district or by some reduced mm-hmm. tuition agreement between the higher education institution and the district. Okay, sorry to do this again. Expensive for the K-12 district or expensive for She's saying both. That, that, yeah. Right. It's, it's right. Yeah. That sometimes the districts pay or sometimes they get a discount, meaning that higher ed systems are taking a haircut, right? Okay. But that the state is actually spending more money overall because kids are getting more college credit because they're moving through, through school more quickly, right? right? So it's not immediately intuitive mm-hmm. to me that it would be more expensive. It might be more expensive in a given year, but not right. over yeah. the course of their I should career, clarify, yeah. when I say more expensive, yeah. it's more expensive than the traditional high schools in the surrounding districts. Okay. So when we consider the per student cost, because you have to pay for the higher education instruction that yeah. students are receiving. Yeah. Okay. Anything in here? I, look, I, I'm always curious about this question about, is it a good idea to let everybody into programs like this, even kids who may not be ready for college, right? And mm-hmm. we know there's a lot of those kids out there and there's kids out there who are not anywhere near ready for college. In college, we have a system where they take a placement test and if they're not ready, they end up in remedial education, developmental education. There's a lot of debate about that. In these high schools, I mean, I can imagine it's not working as well for kids who are not as academically well-prepared coming into ninth grade. Is that fair to say? So two things about that. First, uh, in our study, uh, we do mention that most of the students in our study are a little bit above the state average in terms of their prior achievement. Um, This is partly because they applied to an early college high school. They knew that they would benefit from this experience in high school. And so they scored called 2.2 standard deviations above the state average on average. So we do have a slightly higher achieving portion of students. 2.2% of a standard deviation. Yeah, 20% of a a standard deviation. Okay. Okay. But that said, we also had over half of our students were eligible for free or reduced price lunch. So they're still traditionally underserved students, but perhaps slightly more achieving, uh, higher achieving. That said, we did look at whether the effects of early colleges Mm -hmm. differed across different subgroups, and we did not find any significant differences with two exceptions. We did find that higher achieving students benefited slightly more in terms of enrolling in a two-year college and getting an associate degree, okay. not a bachelor's degree. Interesting. Um, and we saw that, like I mentioned before, control yeah. students are more likely to enter directly into a four-year college. Yeah. And that's why higher achieving control students were yeah. not more likely getting to get associate. an associate okay. degree. Yeah. Gotcha. Can I just ask, we've grilled you pretty well here, <laughs> but if you, if you can't, I mean, what kinds of courses are they actually taking, right? Because I, as Mike was talking, I just found myself thinking, man, again, we're like, you know, we have to sort of generalize to talk about these things sensibly, but you know, you can be ready for college, but not necessarily ready for Harvard. Right. And you, <laughs> yeah. Right. And you can be ready for Harvard, but not necessarily ready for like Harvard's physics department. Right. right. So, you know, I guess I'm just kind of curious 
what courses they're taking and, you know, if we can draw any conclusions about whether they're ready for those courses specifically. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have data on course specific. Uh, our outcome data come from the National Student Clearinghouse. So we have great detailed data in terms of where they went to college, at what point in time and what degrees they earned. Yeah. Less data on what kind of degree uh, in terms of what um, field of study they had or what courses they were taking. We don't have those data yet, though we would certainly ask about that in a follow-up study because we do want to know, are they getting into STEM fields? We had two of our early colleges were focused more on STEM related fields. So we want to know, are, is there alignment between what the, the proposed uh, focus is and their eventual career outcomes? All right. We will have to leave it there, but thank you so much again, Christy Zeiser, senior researcher at the American Institutes for Research. Check out her study at the AIR website on, again, the impact on early college high school programs, the long-term impact. Exciting stuff. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving? I did. 18 yeah. people. The turkey turned out. The meal turned out. Everybody contributed. It was a success. That's year. well done. Oof. Very impressive. You too, David? Uh, we had, yes, yes, we had we had food. <laughs> uh, we had three ducks. So oh, that, three, three ducks. Ducks. Yes. Wow. Only two of which actually got eaten. Okay. On the day of, but the third one okay. met its fate eventually. Uh-huh. So it was good. Uh, okay, yeah, it was nice to see family. Interesting nice. ducks. Uh, well, you're from Oregon, so I guess that's appropriate. <laughs> yeah, we're a little off. I thought you rooted for ducks <laughs> instead of eat them, but okay, we worship them. Uh, okay, well, fair enough. Hey, I'm excited, Amber. You know, we yes. just spent a whole bunch of time talking about a different research study, but now, so this is good. You're not doing what we would consider our normal research right. study. We are here right. to, talk to talk about, about pizza. 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 That's uh, right. And you know I'm going to work in a couple quiz questions for you guys just to make it interesting. Well, we have read the results. <laughs> You've so read it. You You're prepared. Do well on this. All right. Good. Pizza results released just yesterday. Headlines are pretty grim around the world, I'd say. Uh, as a reminder, this is an international test of 15-year-olds across the globe of their knowledge and skills in reading, math, and science. The test was administered to kids in 79 high and middle income countries. Mm-hmm. It began in year 2000. It's administered every three years. So we are in the seventh administration of the test. Mm-hmm. Time flies. PISA also collects lots of information on students' attitudes and well-being and information from the participating schools. Students must have been enrolled in school at grade seven or higher. Representative samples of schools are selected based on location, urbanicity, and grade served. Then students are randomly selected from each school to sit for the assessment. That's the idea. <laughs> yes. And then there's China. Then there's China. Most countries yeah. assess between four to 8,000 students total. They're given different sampling weights to make sure they're blah, blah, blah. Okay. We're going to focus on the U.S. results. All right. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. But we're also going to talk a little bit about the overall results. Mm-hmm. Overall results. China, four eastern provinces. I've been to these places, by the way, aside. Represented in Pisa do not represent China as a whole. Got to say mm-hmm. that. Okay. And of course, so we're not even sure whether China, like, Followed the sampling specifications, but anyway, I digress. They definitely did, Amber. How dare you? Beijing, Shanghai, Jingzhou, and Zhejiang. I think I got that last one wrong. Outperform their peers in all other 78 participating systems in math and science by a wide margin, shall I say. 
And in reading, <laughs> only Singapore came close. And right. Russia, meanwhile, says that its athletes uh, don't use illegal steroids <laughs> right. in international competition. Right. This is just how wide the margin was, okay? Just a little. Mm-hmm. The most advantaged kids, the 10% of the most advantaged students in those four provinces mm-hmm. showed better reading skills than those of the average students in the rest of the OECD countries. See, here's the deal. China, if you're going to cheat, you got to make it look a little more believable. I mean, kids know this. You, you, Although if you're in Beijing and Shanghai, I can kind of believe it, right? Uh, but I'm not that's sure. That's the question. Yeah. All yeah. Right. It's number two. The U.S. performed above the OECD average in reading and science and below it in math. Their scores were similar, meaning our scores, similar to Australia, Germany, New Zealand, and Sweden, and the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Number three, the trend lines in the U.S. in mean performance in reading since 2000 in math since 2003, mm-hmm. and in science 2006, are all what? Flat. flat. Oh, flat. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Science flat. is up. Science is up. Science since 2006 is okay. flat. Okay. Since 2006. Mm-hmm. Okay. OECD says stable is okay. their word. Okay. More recently, there's been a little bump yeah. in science. I okay. Number four. Must but be in- those uh, next generation science standards <laughs> that we hate, Amber. <laughs> Yeah, the ARC or whatever they call those things. But in reading, right spot, the share of students who scored at five or six, which is the top level, Mm -hmm. the top performers, increased by almost four percentage points. Mm -hmm. That's a significant increase of 13.5% between 2009 and 18. Mm -hmm. All right, quiz time. How many percentage of U.S. students received the top score of five or six? In in what subject? Reading? I think it's reading. Very few. (laughs) Five or six? Yeah. Uh, Uh, Five or six together. 10%. Uh, 14 Okay. Number six, sorry, I've got like 10 quick things. 27% of advantaged students in the U.S., but only 4% of disadvantaged students were top performers in reading. Mm-hmm. However, this was good news. 10% of disadvantaged kids in the U.S. were able to score among the, the top quarter of students mm-hmm. in the country. Number seven, the gender gap in reading. We know it always favors the girls. 24 points in favor of the girls. The OECD age gender gap here was 30 score points, by the way. In the U.S., boys outperform girls in math. Nine score points. I actually mm-hmm. thought it'd be a greater gap than that. While in science, girls and boys perform similarly. Mm-hmm. Number eight, I'm almost done. In the U.S., the proportion of students with immigrant backgrounds rose from 19 to 23% from mm-hmm. 2009 to 2018. After accounting for students and schools' socioeconomic status, immigrant students outperformed their native-born peers by 16 score points. Whereas these kids are all kind of lumped together. Mm-hmm. Number nine, and then I'll just give you a little bit of the survey stuff. What percentage of kids do you think have a growth mindset? And this is the, the statement. They they have to disagree with the statement. Your intelligence is something about you that you can't change much. Hmm. That is tricky. They disagree yeah, with first, that. No. Growth mindset. <laughs> I went first last time. All right, how many do have a growth mindset? How many yeah, they, do, they, they, so they disagree with that. Yeah, I think 70%. What do you think? I still don't know. 68. 68. Oh, nine. That's I was going to guess 69. Okay, <laughs> it's like Price is Right. You always get one above or one. Guess. Well done, Mike. <laughs> yeah. And the last one, number 10, U.S. kids, we've heard this before. Um, they're kind of high self-esteem, right? Oh, yeah. So the kids who perform poorly still have very high expectations for their future. So what percentage of low performers report that they expect to complete their post-secondary education? Oh, yeah. 85%. 90. 75. Ah. <laughs> ah, and that's it. OECD average was 48%. So, wow, we're really knocking out of the park on that one. That's uh, it. So, it. so now let's add a little more context. Go though. ahead, Mike. Look, You've been writing about it today. Well, you know, that many of our competitor countries have done worse over time, especially if you mm-hmm. go back to the early 2000s, you see declines. And I think if I can remember this, Japan and at least a couple of mm-hmm. subjects, South Korea in math, Canada, Australia, okay. New Zealand, and then there's Finland 
wind, which is completely plummeted. Uh, in fact, uh, has, has lost more ground than any other OECD country really? in both math and science and all but Iceland in reading. So na 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 boohoo for those people who like to point to Finland, Finland. as the opposite of America and that we should follow their lead. that one up. Wow. Maybe not. I do feel bad that I never got to go on the junket to Finland like most other people mm. in our space. But right. anyway, I guess yeah. we can get a junket to China like you did, uh, Amber. <laughs> yeah, now. I did. Right when I came to Fordham, I guess. Look, I, I really, you know, th- this fact that so many of these uh, wealthy countries have seen declines, Lines. kind of mm-hmm. uh, an education recession, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it raises questions. You think, okay, has there something that's changed in the schools of all of these places? Mm-hmm. Or is there something outside of school that happened like the Great Recession? <laughs> or what else, David? What else is on my mind? I can't begin to imagine oh, what you're you going to say yes, next. you do. Yeah, of technology. It's Mike. those it's damn screen phones. Time. Yeah, we'll see a phones. trend out there. So come on, let's just grab this <laughs> what thing else? in the universe and like connect it to the trend. Why what not? else could explain South Korea? Literally I mean, anything. I know very little about South Korea. I, but I, what I do know is they. I think they, they love their phones. So hmm. I'm just saying that uh, <laughs> this might be it. I give up. You're right. You're go- oh, Korea's David, come negative, on. It's a hypothesis. Steadily negative. You're right. Australia, Finland, Iceland, New Zealand, all steadily negative. Yeah. There's, there's no reason to cherry- need to cherry pick here. I mean, on page yeah. four of the U.S.'s thing, you can see the average for the other countries. And we're virtually parallel to them in mm-hmm. math and reading. And we're actually making progress in science, right. which I haven't seen yeah. in right. any of the. Bit. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, or it looks like it. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! But you know, the, the, it's it's just a little frustrating because, of course, many of the news articles uh, went with a, a pretty gloomy picture. Mm. Which, look, by all means, you know, we still trail some of the top. Uh, yes. countries in the world we mm-hmm. of course wish we were doing better but you're telling me you know we had a major recession and you know these kids are still working their way through the system and we the immigrant you said the you know essentially right. the non-native population yeah. of the u.s is growing mm-hmm. we have a growing right. number of non-english speakers in mm-hmm. the u.s mm-hmm. i mean the fact that we are keeping pace even i yeah. think is people don't see it that way but yeah and and the top performers right yeah. i mean and, that was good news too yeah it, it does seem like there's this pattern in that top performers are separating from the rest, which mm-hmm. is, is a little, you know, it's well, good news, right? It, Look, it it's is, good news for those kids, it's but it's good news for those kids. And, you know, we saw this on NAEP as well. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. And, you know, again, you say, is it something happening outside of schools that parents are doing the, the much maligned helicopter mm-hmm. parenting? Mm-hmm. Uh, where is it something inside schools? I mean, and, and look, I think we'd be careful here. Uh, we like to put ourselves in the middle of the story. Uh, that, <laughs> us? You know, no. us and, and the policies we support. You know, it is true that there has been this big shift in policy from focusing on the lowest performing kids via in the no child left behind era, mm-hmm. low standards, easy tests, accountability systems, all about getting kids to basic literacy and numeracy. We've shifted away from that. We now have a system with higher standards, much tougher tests, uh, more focus on progress over time. It is possible that schools are paying more attention now to kids towards the top of the performance spectrum mm-hmm. than they used to, uh, or that those kids are the ones that are getting the most benefit right now from the new Whatever curriculum resources, standard. right? right. Uh, again, hypotheses. Uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the question is, can we walk and chew gum at the same time? Or do we need to have this conversation that says, you know what? Are we leaving the low performers behind again? And do we need to go back to no child left behind style mm-hmm. systems? You know, I'd like to think that we don't have to make those trade-offs, but there has been a shift. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, the no child left behind system. I'm still trying to figure out what what that was exactly because we didn't we we think we had sanctions for schools, but we we didn't really have that strong with well, sanctions. But, right? did, but there's there was plenty of evidence, you know, from what the Tom D studies mm-hmm. and some others that that accountability seemed to have an impact. And I think we certainly know that even if the bark was worse than his bite, right, it right. had got the attention right. of schools, That's especially right. the highest poverty, lowest performing schools. That's true. By the way, a bunch of those schools also went away. Not necessarily because of accountability pressure, but because of charter schools, because mm-hmm. kids left those schools for charters in the cities. And, you know, you saw some of those cities with mm-hmm. those huge numbers of right. school closures. Uh, so some of the worst schools did go mm-hmm. away. I mean, Philadelphia, so that, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Chicago, mm-hmm. Kansas City. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, my sense still, I've been writing about this, you know, over the last years that all of that stuff mattered, had an impact. I just want to know. It's a different strategy now. We are trying to now say, well, okay, that was great, but we were now trying to move kids at the middle and at the top, and and maybe that's starting to happen. I just want to know what's happening in science. There's suggestive evidence of a good news story there, to be totally honest. I feel like I don't know enough about it to to comment, but um, it makes me want to know more. Yeah, Yeah, well, there are those next generation science standards. It's the only thing (laughs) that... <laughs> that we can think of, right? <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, we could speculate forever. That's what's so fun about test scores. It's all, yes. uh, anybody can speculate, right? Well, Most of the stuff is hard to we prove. We can and we do. And we do. And we will continue <laughs> yes. so in the future. All right. Thanks, Amber. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.